This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Jim Walton, President and CEO of Genesis Physicians Group. Genesis Physicians Group is the largest and oldest IPA in North Texas. They've been around for 35 years. This is a group of 1,500 physicians where Dr. Jim Walton is taking them and transforming it into a high-value network. The Genesis High Value Network is a new risk-bearing entity that's working with independent doctors in the Metroplex, getting them into value-based savings and shared risk model contracts. I'm just really impressed by this transformation that's underway, and we're so happy to share with you, our listeners today, this great story of what's happening at Genesis you know, Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how our conversation went today and what our listeners should expect this week on the Race to Value. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I'm really excited about this conversation we just had. Dr. Walton is a great provider and, and leader in the industry. I love his story about his personal connection and his why, why value is so important to him. He's done a great job with pivoting his IPA toward value, creating opportunity for independent physicians. And the message that I really connected with is just living how you believe. And I know our listeners are going to really appreciate his perspective. Dr. Jim Walton, thank you so much for joining us today in this week's Race to Value. Jim, it's so great to be with you today. I've enjoyed getting to know you over the years, and it's such an honor to be able to sit with you today and chat all things value-based care. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I just am excited about sharing with your audience the work that we're doing here in Dallas, and hopefully we'll get some feedback and I'll learn something as well. So thank you for inviting me. Well, Jim, I've worked with so many physicians in my career, and I must say you have one of the deepest ties to medicine of anyone I've known. I mean, you grew up in a doctor's family and were drawn in at a very early age, following your dad, making house calls, going to nursing homes, spending time in the office, shadowing him. Once you started practicing medicine, you forged deep ties in the community and developed a passion for treating the underserved. Your clinical work throughout your medical career was in poor communities, 
coordinating care for complex patients with diverse backgrounds. You made house calls to patients that needed care the most, those living on the most extreme fringe of vulnerability. And I'd like to learn more about how these formative moments in medicine early on motivated you to become a physician executive with a focus on health equity. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in medicine, making home visits with your dad, from taking you to the point where you were medical director of Dallas County Medical Society's Project Access that was focused on reducing disparities of care. Of course, your executive roles at Baylor as medical director of the Office of Community Health and then serving as chief health equity officer. I'd love to learn more about your journey in medicine and how that really informed your experience as a leader in value-based care that you are today. And, and especially as it helped you understand firsthand routine medical practice and how it continues to treat black and brown patients differently than white patients and the whole health equity piece. Jim, I'd love to hear that part of your story today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. I'm a general internist by training, and as every physician knows, you know, the training that you go through in a major medical center brings you into very close contact with the marginalized population. Oftentimes, that's how we're learning to be doctors is caring for marginalized, underserved populations of people. And in the training experience I had, they happen to be people of color. And that's generally true around the United States. When I went into medical practice in a small town in Waxahachie, Texas, as a general internist, I joined two other general internists and we became a group of three. And, you know, I was just in private practice. To be quite frank with you, one of our obligations of practicing medicine in this small town was to be the backup physician for patients who were admitted into the emergency room and needed to be admitted into the, into the hospital but didn't have a doctor. And in, in our small town of about 20,000 people, when I went into practice in the 90s, a lot of folks were uninsured. They were poor and they were people of color. One of the obligations of admitting those patients is to make sure we followed up those patients as outpatients when they left the hospital. And the story of one patient encapsulates my transformation. When I had a, a middle-aged black male who had a urological problem that needed to be followed up, but he did not have any insurance. And as it turned out, when we solved this problem while he was an inpatient, we could not obtain effective care for him as an outpatient. And he was lost to follow up, only to be readmitted two years later while I was also on call and he presented with metastatic prostate cancer. I was so overwhelmed by guilt and shame that I decided to, that I would start seeing this man at his home, only to find out that he did not have a home, that he was living in a, a dirt floor garage in our town, and it was his uh, ex-wife's home, and he was in a bed in this dirt floor garage dying of metastatic prostate cancer in its horrific pain. This was pre-hospice, if you, if you want to call it that way. And I attended to him until he died. And what I realized that my guilt and shame was about was that our outpatient clinic, our internal medicine outpatient clinic, had created barriers to the uninsured to get effective follow-up care that would enable me to make sure that we addressed his medical problems from the first admission. 
So that sent me on a journey in the early 90s to build infrastructure in this small town of Waxahachie that was in the hospital there was connected to the Baylor healthcare system. It's a small 40-bed hospital. And they also had a hospital 20 miles away in Ennis, Texas. And we established two rural health clinics in a little over two years to care for the uninsured that were having trouble with follow-up. And the hospital decided to subsidize that work. So I transitioned part of my clinical work to supervise nurse practitioners in rural health centers on behalf of the hospital in the early 90s. And that started my administrative job. I learned how to write grants. I started to begin to understand public health funding for Ryan White funds, for AIDS patients who were coming back from different major cities and, and dying in the early 90s back in our hometown. I, I became an AIDS physician making house calls, and it grew rapidly, managing hypertension and diabetes with medications that I delivered out of the back of my car, enlisting the help of an African-American nurse from the hospital who knew the community better, and we would go around on my day off and deliver medicines and evaluate people in their homes. All kinds of not only chronic disease management, but public health strategies came out of that for our town. Parallel to that, our medical group was struggling through the early phases of managed care organization contracting during that window of time, and we elected to sell our medical practice to Baylor Healthcare System. They were consolidating primary care doctors at that time, and we made the strategic decision to join their 501A organization connected to Baylor. It's called Health Texas Provider Network. When Baylor discovered how much time I was spending in community medicine, they offered me this job to serve the entire healthcare system starting in about 1996. And so I began to work for Baylor across uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area and the kind of the North Texas region, establishing community medicine strategies for that system to help reduce unnecessary morbidity and mortality from people of color, as it turned out, uninsured people, while also reducing cost, uncompensated care cost in the hospital by avoiding admissions, readmissions, complications, things like that. So this grew, grew over the next 20 years of my career to where I was then making house calls in Dallas on people that had survived major neurotrauma and were being discharged home as well as people with complex cardiovascular disease, while also simultaneously managing a network of primary care clinics that were serving the poor and then the underserved. So that's kind of how things evolved. But I would tell you that it probably began when I was a kid following my dad around when I was in junior high and high school, making rounds with him at the hospital and the nursing homes and going to people's homes back in the uh, 60s. It's kind of come naturally to some extent, but more importantly, I think for me, it was this kind of awareness that I really didn't escape the problem of the underserved and the uninsured by going into private practice in a small town. It actually was there waiting for me and to be morally conscious about it, that that is the role of the profession of medicine is to design solutions for the community's health to improve the community's health. 
So value-based contracting is a just a natural next step along that path, in my view, for physicians to take responsibility for the health of the community and the satisfaction of the community with the healthcare that's being provided. Dr. Walton, I love that backstory, and and it's just so enlightening and and really illustrative of why so many physicians get into providing care for patients and why they're attracted to value-based care. I think about how most physician executives in value-based care would be content in building out a robust multi-payer strategy that includes contracts with commercial payers, with Medicare Advantage, with MSSP contracts, and you're building out that contract portfolio in your value network. However, your passion for the underserved has also taken Genesis to a whole new level with your entry into Medicaid risk. So your value-based network recently launched a Medicaid contract that exposes it to downside risk over time with what is a very vulnerable population of about 30,000 managed lives. That in and of itself is such an amazing feat for independent physicians in in the Metroplex, especially considering that according to the Texas Medical Association, fewer than 50% of physicians in Texas even accept new Medicaid patients at all. So while the vast majority of physician-led ACOs in Texas are avoiding these types of contracts outside of FQHCs that have been traditionally working with them for long periods of time and have deep experience in the safety net model, your ACO is going all in on Medicaid. And this is such an inspiration. And I know your mission to serve that population stems from this deeply rooted sense of purpose that you've described to us. Can you walk us through the rationale for why you embrace the challenges of Medicaid so early on in the relative new value-based care transformation with your IPA? And, And how does this move into Medicaid risk align with your mission to champion the independent physician's passion for the profession of medicine and to increase affordable quality patient care? Yeah, it's it's such a powerful idea and questions. When we started our value-based journey as an IPA, you know, we're we're a large IPA of 1,500 physicians. You know, it's a 35-year-old company with very traditional IPA functions for the last 35 years. I became the CEO about nine years ago with the charge from my board to take this company into the the future, into the value-based future. And as we all know that the journey, you know, around 2012, 13, and 14 was the CMS, MSSP contract where you started to help fee-for-service Medicare patients and the doctors that take care of them improve quality while controlling unnecessary and avoidable costs and improving patient satisfaction. So, you know, we all have parents that are elderly and and we're all going to get older and, and become Medicare patients at some point. So this all fits, right? It's a very noble activity. We identified when we offered our network of primary care physicians, which for our PCPs in our network, we have about 335, 350 of those physician members. We offered them back in 2014 and 15, the opportunity to participate in Medicare in this first ACO contract by our IPA. And we were standing up our population health management infrastructure, just like everybody else does, trying to follow a little bit of a standardized playbook. Along the way, we got some help from a great organization called InnoVista Health Solutions that we, de- we ultimately developed a joint venture partnership with that's really helped uh, accelerate that. So to be frank with you, we had the opportunity to achieve some success in the Medicare space that gave us some confidence to work toward commercial value-based contracting as well. 
But what was fascinating is I have been working with the Texas Medical Association for the last 20 to 25 years around the whole problem with Medicaid in Texas. And so because that's been something I've been doing as part of my professional career, I decided to ask the question of our organization is, I wonder if we have primary care physicians who are doing a lot of Medicaid work. I just asked our staff, just tell me how many of our doctors are actually doing Medicaid, and then I'll, I'll ask some of the payers to tell us how many Medicaid patients they have. Well, lo and behold, we had about 80 of our primary care physicians that were in our Medicaid contracts, and it, as it turned out, there were about 60,000 patients assigned to those doctors. So it just struck me as like, well, I better, I better live my belief system. And so I, I decided to strike a deal with one of our Medicaid managed care organizations who wanted to partner with us and then ask our physicians if they would like for us to help them with population health management strategies to help them with their Medicaid patients. Well, Dr. Walton, as we're talking about your new Medicaid contract, and you have all these physicians pulled together looking at ways to improve care for that population and address social determinants of health, I understand your value network is really thinking about how to leverage AI to form a more personalized approach to social intervention strategies that can really have a more impactful clinical intervention. And the beauty of your AI deployment, as I understand it, your algorithms don't use just claims clinical data, diagnostics, and prescriptions, but you're truly combining all of that social data that comes from health risk assessments and taking it a step further to refine your predictive model. Can you discuss your AI solution and how you're using that to create these risk predictions and then really activate your community health worker team to address patient needs like housing, transportation, food insecurity, and other factors related to poverty. I'd love to understand how you're activating your CHW workforce to really create that necessary intervention that's powered by AI to really move the needle in addressing some of these social determinants. Now, that was, that was probably step number one. And then step number two was a new model of care that had arrived. The discussion that had started in the community around social determinants of health. When I was working at the Baylor Healthcare System in community medicine, we had focused on community-based social issues as an intervention for the population of people that were uninsured. So I was very familiar with that because we, we had done that back in the early 2000s. And so I thought we could leverage that experience using community health workers as a staff and lo and behold, I found a model at Medical Home Network out of Chicago that had actually operationalized that same strategy. And it occurred to me that we could develop a relationship with Medical Home Network to help us learn how to actually put that into place to help private physicians. The key element that they were using that had become also a feature, a new feature that had not existed in the past was the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to integrate both clinical and social determinants of health together to create a predictive analysis risk score with a likely intervention that would have an influence on the outcome of the patient, the most likely intervention being social. So we determined that we would build an infrastructure that would be social interventions in nature to support our primary care doctors who were doing the clinical work. 
so our objective was to tell our Medicaid physicians, who generally are very, very busy seeing 30, 40 patients a day to keep their lights on because Medicaid pays so poorly, that we would come alongside them with our population health management and address the social issues that oftentimes cause the doctors to not to close care gaps, as well as to oftentimes patients were struggling with, and that's why they utilize the emergency room for primary care diagnosis. So that's kind of the theory that we based our decision upon that said, I think we could pull this off and we should live our values. We should not shy away from this just because it hadn't been done in Texas. And so we thought, well, shoot, if we're successful, we could transform the way Texas Medicaid is done by changing it in in Dallas, Texas. So that was kind of the bullish opinion, I guess, that I took around this. So Dr. Walton, I love the mission of Genesis and what you've done to help independent physicians stay viable. So while also connecting them to their passion for the profession of medicine, I really want to know more about how you're competing in your local market, which is hyper-competitive. The healthcare industry in North Texas is massive, like everything else in Dallas, right? (laughs) We've got health systems, hospitals, outpatient clinics, real estate, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, health tech, insurance, and other subsectors that represent about 15% of the regional economy, or $52 billion, according to the Dallas Regional Chamber. As a physician network with independent practices, you're really dealing with immense competitive pressure. There's this absolute feeding frenzy in the marketplace for doctors. How are you positioning the physician network you lead to stay competitive in a marketplace as competitive as North Texas? And how are you incentivizing physicians to stay in your network when they have so many options like PE-backed physician aggregators, health systems, and other ACOs vying for their attention? Physicians in our region and probably throughout the state of Texas and other states certainly desire in their core to be independent, to guide their own practice. Now, I wouldn't say all physicians, I would say, but there's a significant subset of them. Let's say 30, 40, 50% of the doctors that I know want to have some degree of autonomy and directing their own futures. Now, within that group of doctors, then there are competitive pressures, but I would just say to you that within our community, there's plenty of doctors who want to stay independent. The next point I would make would be that our job, my job, is to make sure that the brand Genesis stands for quality physician network and a support infrastructure that provides headroom. We, we coined that term headroom, where we come alongside our, our private practicing physicians and provide services to them rather than giving them more work to do to close care gaps or other activities that they feel is a little bit more onerous and insensitive to what they're really going through. Third is that we decided that we would bring financial incentives closer to the performance of the activities that we think are important to improve quality and reduce cost. So we have built a network of physician advisors. We have, we call those pod leaders. We have about a dozen of those right now who advise through our chief medical officer our operations teams about what is working and what is not working with regards to our operational playbook. And they help structure financial rewards that would be given to the physicians on a quarterly basis as they accomplish month by month, they work on closing care gaps. 
So bringing financial rewards closer to the performance of practice transformation or population health management activities is another is a is our third concept. And the fourth concept is this point that you've already raised, and that is we want to provide physicians a menu of opportunities from commercial to Medicare, Medicare Advantage to Medicaid, representing the entire portfolio of patient populations that a physician might actually have in their practice, with the theory that you don't have to win just on one contract and or lose because you only have one, but rather you could potentially stack contracts on top of one another, value-based arrangements, and have small wins in multiple contracts across an entire portfolio that ultimately stack up to create a positive financial reward where we're enhancing the physician's financial performance for their practice. Now, to be frank with you, that strategy stands opposed to all these rich offers that are being kind of thrown around by PE-backed firms or hospital systems. But the one feature that I think serves as the common denominator for those doctors is their ability to maintain their autonomy and practice viability. So to some extent, we talk about it in our company as the joy of practicing medicine while improving quality and patient experience. So it kind of gets at that quadruple aim we talked about. It's trying to figure out that joy of being in the profession of medicine led by physicians, directed by physicians, and the solutions and the troubleshooting, the optimization being accomplished with a team, including doctors and administrative staff. Well, Dr. Walton, as I think about your charge to lead in taking a legacy messenger model fee-for-service IPA like Genesis Physicians Group that's been around for 35 years, in leading that organization, as you said, your charge from your board was to really develop a high-performing risk-bearing network. And I just can't help but think about having such an interesting scenario for transformation because you really do have to identify those physicians in your IPA that are going to be most compatible with performance in the value network. You have to convince the payers to give you risk-based contracts. And then once you get the contracts, you have this huge responsibility as an executive in making sure that your physicians are engaged and you can develop and operationalize a winning playbook for success. And I know a major part of this value transformation is knowing how to engage those physicians in your major league, which is your value network, while also using your IPA as a, almost like a farm system to help cultivating a, a pipeline for value. So in engaging your value-focused physicians, I'm really interested in how do you keep from overwhelming them? You mentioned like giving them headroom and making sure that you provide centralized services and support to make sure that they can succeed in the kind of the new value model. Can you share with our listeners how you were able to activate such a large faction of the physician IPA membership and create this major league for physicians that are ready and able to take risk? And how intentional are you as a physician executive in developing that population health infrastructure that really alleviates that physician burden so that they do have the most optimal glide path for success in value-based care? I think one of our contexts that is really important for the listeners to acknowledge, I suppose, is that physicians in our region are exhausted and have been exhausted by the traditional managed care organization. 
And so the notion that a payer can perform managed care without burning out a physician has kind of now been revealed is that the doctors have kind of burned out on managed care because the nature of the relationship between payers getting in between doctors and their patients. And that's been a sore point. It was a sore point when I was practicing, and I think it continued to be one until the kind of the ACO revolution that enabled organizations like ours, physician-led organizations, to step in and be that managed care population health manager partner with our doctors. It is because doctors invest and support the Genesis IPA that gives us the platform and the permission to establish solutions that's at the direction of the physician leadership. So it's really built by physicians and managed by physicians that seems to be some of the magic that we've been able to leverage here. Now, I'm not trying to say that all managed care organizations run by payers are negative. I'm just saying that in our region, that's what's happened. And that was what I entered into is we had to realize that we're in danger of being seen as the payer's agent and being rejected as much as the doctors reject the payers. So our job from an engagement standpoint has been to tell our members that we work for them and that we're listening to them. So we have you know, an active board of directors of 13 doctors. We have a primary care-driven quality improvement committee. We also have a specialty subcommittee that works on referral management with our physicians. So tools and services that are brought to bear on the populations under management are vetted by these physicians. So we feel like we have our fingers on the pulse of what the majority, or let's say maybe 70%, you know, you're never going to make everybody happy. So you're going to always have 20% of the people kind of upset with you. But if you can get 70% of the folks to kind of say, you know, I think you're helping me a little bit. You're not burdening me. And we've led with the concept of headroom. That is to say, if we're not giving you headroom, let us know. Because our job is not to come and tell you new things to do on top of your already busy day, but rather giving you some headroom. So a lot of that is structuring reports the way the doctors want them, communicating and sitting down with the physicians when and where they want to have the conversations. As I said, bringing financial rewards and incentives, but tapping into both the intrinsic motivation and the extrinsic motivation of physicians and recognizing that both are at play at any given time. This isn't just a money play. It really is about taking good care of patients and being someone's doctor is a very vital and important sacred concept. And we lift that up. I mean, we're, we're really, we talk openly around that concept, oftentimes calling each other out that our mammogram rates aren't where they need to be. And maybe that's not a good thing for our organization because somebody's mom or grandma's not getting what they need. We all care deeply about that. So it's not just checking a box around achieving a quality score so that we get a bigger shared savings. It's really about somebody's mother and grandmother getting the preventive care they need. So those are the kinds of, I think, tactical approaches. They seem a little soft, but I think as I say them, I'm kind of saying, I don't know if anybody's going to believe me, but those are really the way we approach it. Dr. Walton, I'm intrigued by your comments about the dichotomy, this challenge that you face with the payers and that you don't want to 
replicate being a payer and having the same difficult conversations with your physicians. I appreciate you sharing that perspective. But during your tenure at Genesis Physicians Group, you've been really successful in actually forging these strong relationships with pairs. And so as these relationships have matured to fully functional partnerships within Genesis High Performance Network, this is quite an accomplishment. You've told us how independent physicians are leery of payers due to the infringement of fee-for-service politics and managed care requirements on the physician-patient relationship. So overcoming these past misgivings and building a trusting collaboration for the future of population health is truly a testament to your leadership as a physician and executive. You know, it's not too long ago when providers would consider payers as on the dark side, where in a fee-for-service world, negotiations between providers and payers were always a zero-sum game. But in this physician network leading in value-based care, you're in a different environment where you don't win unless you build these successful partnerships with payers, where all entities are equal partners at the table. They make joint decisions, perform clinical integration activities, and work together on programs to support improved outcomes and quality performance. In thinking through that as a value-minded physician leader, you know, representing these independent physicians, how have you been able to, quote, check your weapons at the door as it relates to historical biases and assumptions? How have you figured out how to work with payers in this collaborative manner to form a true win-win partnership? The one thing an IPA cannot do legally, it's antitrust, is, is to negotiate rates. So over the course of the journey of an IPA, most people know the fee-for-service payment schedules that have been offered to independent physicians continue to go down, in some cases below Medicare reimbursement rates. New products that are launched by payers, narrow networks, things like that have some features that have maybe a slightly enhanced fee-for-service schedule. But in general, most physicians have experienced a falling revenue stream per case. And and so the only way they can respond to that is to jump on the treadmill and, and go faster, do more units. Well, we all know that by doing more units of service per given unit of time, quality suffers, patient experience suffers, and some unintended side effects occur that are just not really healthy for the industry or for patients or to be frank, for the doctor. That's why we would explain that there's a large burnout occurring within primary care. So that's the backdrop with which I make my comment. So payers in our community, starting around 2014, 2015, and accelerating, had initially started having meaningful conversations, first with our integrated delivery networks, hospital-based systems that have aligned physician networks. And so we were not first to the discussion. They, they actually were first in getting their discussions and their contracts worked out. So we were very, very happy when payers started to have conversations with independent IPAs like ours to say, how would you like to have a value-based arrangement that would migrate you to more risk? We were like, absolutely. You know, Again, that was why I was hired and we were really excited about that. The good news about value-based arrangements, just from a technical standpoint, is that they typically are addendums to our base contract. So we don't have a conversation about fee-for-service rates. What we have a conversation about is what are the rewards for improving quality and reducing total cost of care while managing and watching patient satisfaction? 
So we can't have meaningful conversations in that addendum space that we could not have within the traditional fee-for-service schedules. So that enabled us to really start to forge partnerships. If you think about that new discussion now that you are now having that you didn't have before, you're actually talking about what's meaningful to a payer because they're in a competitive environment as well. And that's really what was the big aha for me, that they were struggling with competitive market pressures with their own competitors. And so having a high-performing network that has high quality and low cost, which independent physicians have a natural tendency to do, is a value add to every payer. So we started to have conversations through that lens that enabled us to jointly affirm each other's competitive issues that we that we're struggling through and to become more partner-like that hey this is in both of our interests to be successful and so let's strike a deal and start anew on a new path rather than just being frustrated and angry about the fact that every two or three years they were ratcheting down the fee-for-service schedules so that's kind of how we did it and, and kind of philosophically why we were able to strike so many deals with so many of local payers. And, and of course, the proof is in the pudding, really. You have to perform. And of course, you've got to give them payers an opportunity to tell you what their pain points are and respond to them when they tell you. So that's also part of the deal. Well, Dr. Walton, I can't help but think about how in every adversity there's an opportunity and you made reference to the competitive pressures that payers are experiencing and how that has allowed a relationship or a partnership to coalesce between the payer and your physicians and then you know, creating that collaboration that's been missing for all too long. And I, I can't help but think also of additional pressures that are being faced, uh, particularly around this COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, we're truly facing a global dispassionate economic pressures that eventually I think are going to be very pervasive and reimagining and redefining healthcare as we know it. And I wanted to just get your perspective on this COVID-19 pandemic and the implications it has for the value-based care movement. Personally speaking, I just can't help but think if there is any silver lining to this pandemic, it's that it's underscored the importance of capitated contracts because providers that were exposed to financial risk really made out okay, while others had fee-for-service revenue streams completely dry up because of declines in elective procedures and office visits. So it seems like the pandemic has really had a I mean, we may not see it quite yet, but it is having a catalytic effect in terms of bringing the value-based care movement more in terms of the mainstream and, and really creating this historic moment for leaders like you to test their effectiveness during a time of crisis. This scourge of COVID-19 is really this ultimate crucible for testing resiliency. So Dr. Walton, I wanted to ask you, what has been your strategy as a leader to really sustain a high-performing interdisciplinary team during this pandemic crisis over the last year? I mean, how have you been able to motivate your team members to care for patients and provide high-quality support for, for the physicians when they themselves may be in need of care during these uncertain times? And also, what are your physicians thinking about this movement now to value-based care, given this historic flashpoint for change that we're experiencing with the COVID-19 pandemic? I was um, in a conversation just last night with a physician, a solo 
family physician who unfortunately has made the decision to stop practicing in his 50s because he's so burned out from what's happened because of COVID. I think that a, a sad statement that oftentimes the resiliency of the individual human, that is that the doctors are human, can't meet that challenge that a COVID-19 pandemic can do, has done to many, many doctors. We've seen other doctors become ill, be admitted to the hospital, recover, start back into their practice and flourish. So each scenario and narrative probably have seen it in our network. There's no doubt that what you said, that prospective payment also oftentimes use the term PCP capitation or professional capitation payments or full capitation is a solution to kind of create some insurance against financial stress in this moments like this. But I, I would tell you that one of the things that's happening in our region is we had this a little bit of a perfect storm where you had COVID superimposed on private equity-backed investment in urgent care, acquisition of practices, and new models of care, whether those minute clinics or what CVS and Walgreens are doing, and basically siphoning away from independent primary care physicians, patients that are still attributed to those doctors in a value-based arrangement, but because of the structure of the benefit policies that the patients have, incentivizes patients to seek urgent care rather than get care at their primary care doctor for episodic care needs. What's happening then is that physicians who had a balance or a mix of patients in their daily practice oftentimes now are seeing that what's left is after hours phone calls to explain what the urgent care nurse practitioner said or directed the patient to do. And the physician's not getting compensated for that phone call because all he or she is doing is taking a phone call from one of his or her patients but they'd, they'd seen another physician or mid-level provider who got paid to see the patient on that day. So we see a lot of stories like that. We also see a lot of stories where doctors' practices are transforming to where they're full of nothing but complex management of chronic diseases without the mix of a low complexity and high complexity that they're accustomed to. So this is stressing out the physician, but it also stresses out the staff and changing the workload for our physicians. So it's, it's very complicated, not only from a financial standpoint, but also from a practice management standpoint of how to pivot your practice with these kind of competitive pressures in North Texas. Not that a lot of doctors aren't able to do that. It's just that it comes with a price. So our job at Genesis is to read those tea leaves articulate those to our physicians and to our staff and to design and stay nimble. So during COVID, we created a weekly meeting of our, I'm thinking about 15 of our leadership team, you know, directors, managers, and VPs to, to bring real-time intelligence from the physicians. We had staff that were forward-facing, physician-facing, practice-facing staff bring in the feedback back to a weekly meeting about what are you hearing this week that, that's going on with these practices and offering them assistance for telemedicine, for example, how to translate or, or how to convert into telehealth capabilities when everybody was really shut down, what to do about accessing PPE, 
how to access vaccines. And so we've really been on this kind of continuous evolution with trying to stay very close to the kind of the heartbeat of what our doctors are going through. The ultimate destination, though, Eric, is definitely to convince our physicians that prospective payment is the destination that we're headed toward, and we want them to embrace that. So we actually entered into our first contract, prospective payment contract, at the beginning of 21. We started it in January with our first Medicare Advantage product with the local Blue Cross Blue Shield payer, but we would like to have more of them and having more of the doctor's patients in a prospective payment model. Dr. Walton, just thinking about how you communicate to your physicians when you're talking about multiple different payment models and the different populations of patients that they're serving and they're conflicted with being able to provide the level of service that they'd like to to all patients that the population or capitated models and and the like give them opportunity to provide through additional infrastructure and resources versus being limited to not providing that for contracts that are fee-for-service or that don't give them sufficient opportunity. I'd love to hear your perspective and communication on how you work with your independent physicians to solve that challenge. We have a provider relations team that has monthly contact with all of our value-based physicians. So let's be clear, we invite all of our physicians to join and the ones who raise their hands and join one of our contracts are going to get the benefit of this provider relationship team who onboards them to the contracts that they've selected. Secondarily, then we're, we're constantly designing products, if you will, communication products for them that channels out to the doctors through the provider relationships team or through my monthly communications to them. The clear communication is the, the more diverse you are, we think of it as a portfolio of investment, investing your time and your talent in multiple streams of value so that you can generate the most value for the most patients. That's kind of the theme. So of course, as you know, each payer segment requires different focus points, but we, we know, generally speaking, our lane at Genesis is in the social navigation space, staying away from the clinical space as much as possible. Although we do have nurses who do disease management, they do medicine reconciliation, and they do some care management. But by and large, what we're really lifting off of the doctor's shoulders is, is a lot of navigation around the social related issues in healthcare. So in general, we cover most of our products in that basic foundation, and then with certain products getting additional features like um, MedRec and transitional care management for Medicare Advantage, post-acute care transitions, things like that, that kind of keep physicians alerted to where their patients are at any point in time, particularly those that they are concerned about. So we allow those doctors to feed back to us patients that they've identified rather than just the patients we've identified by our data. And that's become a two-way street. And, and that's, that's been a huge development of a communication channel that then gets the physician's practice talking to our teams on a regular basis. That enables us to have more opportunities for communication. Dr. Walton, I had this other question I wanted to ask you, just in terms of you 
leading a large physician network. I mean, I believe you have a thousand specialists and 500 primary care physicians, and you're dealing with different generations of physicians. And as I understand it, medical practice these days, and you've alluded to this in your prior comments, but it's far removed from the mission-driven spirit of yesteryear, maybe at the time when your father was practicing medicine. And I know a lot of doctors are telling their children even like not to go into the profession. And as we're in this race to value, and we're at this historic moment in our industry, I just wanted to get your perspective on the up and coming generation of physicians. How do you think they're going to assimilate into this new normal? And once we do reach this more idealized state of penetration and of value-based care in our industry, do you think that ultimately physicians are going to be able to recapture that joy of practicing medicine maybe that they once had? Is there some hope there in terms of alleviating some of that burnout and moral injury that's happening right now in the practice of medicine? Yeah, thank you. There is a a palpable cynicism in the profession. You know, we just have to call that out and just say it. Part of the healing process is just to admit, you know, where you are in the moment. We know many of the factors that have caused the cynicism and the burnout of in, in the profession of medicine. And on the horizon, there seems to be additional forces that are going to conspire to make that even harder. However, I have the privilege of teaching at one of the local universities in a healthcare management program, and I meet on an annual basis hundreds of young students who want to be, often want say they want to be physicians. When they write their essays to me in the coursework, I hear and see in their words and, and feel in the emotions that they're expressing the byproduct of a vision that maybe was introduced to them by their parents or their faith leaders or their grandparents or some significant adult who's helped these young people understand that there is this larger vision for their life. Why are they here and what is their purpose for being here? And they really do want to make a difference. And so as we've all read about the generation of the millennials, they're very purpose-driven. That's a very purpose-driven generation. And of course, we all know that young people collide with reality as soon as they graduate and they get into the adulting phase of their life. And we know that there's a tremendous risk of cynicism around that. So I believe that what we're trying to do here in our work, and I don't think we're alone, of building models that stand like light posts in a very dark, cynical world that says, no, 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 we don't have to give up this vision of doing this for the right reason which is rooted in a long history within the profession of medicine, alleviating unnecessary suffering and morbidity and mortality, reducing or eliminating health disparities that are based on race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. And I think we as a profession have to stand up and say we've built a model that works. It may not be the most economically advanced model, but it is a durable model that is mindful of current economic realities and competitive natures. You may not win the race, but we're going to be in the race. Our job isn't to eliminate our competition. Our job is just to stay in the competition. So we provide a place for the future physicians who want to practice medicine the way they, they visualize it. I, I think there's a lot of 
focus on high touch, more concierge level practice models that are going to come into existence because of capitation that'll allow physicians to have smaller patient panel sizes, more team-based work, more social determinant interventions that really kind of returns the joy back to practicing. The emergence of urgent care and minor minute clinics and nurse practitioner-based primary care activities will allow physicians to enter into that more sacred chronic disease space with patients and develop those longitudinal relationships where there's just much more significant relationship durability uh, created by the work that you're doing for patients and their families. So I'm very, very hopeful that we're going to be able to build a newer model out of this kind of dismal moment that we're in with all the uh, forces that are arrayed against us. Well, Dr. Walton, as we wrap up today, I I did want to ask you to maybe to provide a concluding thought. I mean, knowing you as well as I do, I know as a leader, you draw inspiration from reading and and understanding history. And we're now at this historic moment. And you mentioned we're in a very cynical world. There's a lot of headwinds that leaders in positions like you're in that are trying to lead a a movement towards value-based care. They're often very frustrated and they're not able to move the needle as much as they like. And And looking back at history, is there maybe an example or something, a person that comes to mind that you think would be a good reference for us at this moment in time as we're looking at the future and thinking about how we reimagine healthcare to deliver truly that quadruple aim of lower per capita cost, better patient experience, better quality outcomes, and ultimately a better environment for physicians to practice? I remember when I was started moving more toward executive management you know, and visualizing a future model where for my own professional life, I would be able to influence hundreds and thousands of patients rather than just doing one patient at a time in a private practice. And I had the privilege of attending some seminars where Don Berwick spoke. And I think Don, Dr. Berwick kind of captured my imagination as he coined this language for me around the triple aim and this this idea that the physicians, the profession, the actual profession of medicine that's made up of doctors has the ability to claim this ground. It's not only our job. We have to have partners help us. But because of the nature of how the profession has emerged as an authority in society with regard to things that are health-related, are clinical care-related, are caring for our families and our loved ones, the physicians are held in such high regard that if a physician articulated the desire to maximize quality, to eliminate uh, disparities, to address health disparities, to be about equity and justice in the healthcare system, that people would pay attention to that and find that to be galvanizing and motivating. And so I think that there is this counterweight, which is this kind of capitalistic model that everybody seems to think we're stuck in, like we're in this kind of wash cycle, wash and repeat cycle for of this capitalistic healthcare model. But I think value-based agreements that have emerged since the passage of the ACA have allowed us to reimagine a convergence, if you will, of that professional duty to improve quality and reduce unnecessary suffering, eliminate disparities, while simultaneously being good business people that run a smart business. 
that understand that your employees have to be paid competitively. They have to be given raises and incentives that technology is going to advance and it's going to have an early increase in cost of the national health expenditures, but ultimately improve the quality of life, potentially reduce downstream costs. All of that has to be measured out and done very carefully. And it's, a, it's an enormous system that is difficult to manage. But I see those two kind of polarizing ideas converging in this value-based moment that we're, we're working through, probably will be working through for the next decade or so. Well, Dr. Walton, we truly have some work to do as an industry, and it looks like your physicians at Genesis Physicians Group and the Genesis High Performing Network, they're truly in this race to value. So thank you so much for sharing your leadership and your insights with our listeners and being a part of our podcast this week. Really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. I have too. I really appreciate the opportunity and the questions that you've asked. It's, it was, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Eric and Daniel. 